Left off with Paul admitting in his letters to the believers at Philippi that if he was to live, verse 26, that their rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. It's quite a mouthful. We addressed it last week, wrapped up with that. And then he adds at verse 27 some directives for those believers then and there saying, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whatever, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. For some reason, there's passages that flow, and there's passages that are cumbersome. To me, those get a little bit cumbersome, and let's work through them. Jump back to verse 27, where Paul now says, as as Hey, if I can come to you, I think it's going to be a benefit if I can get out of jail here in Rome. But uh, if I can't, or if even if I do, he says, only now let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. He's given them an apostolic directive that whether I come and see you or be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit and one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We use the word conversation, uh, meaning verbal discourse one with another. Uh, but in the Bible, here in the King James, they use conversation. It means your overall conduct. That's a better interpretation of it. So what Paul says is, let your overall conduct as Christian citizens of Philippi be as one that becomes the gospel. It's an admonition. Remember the setting and the times. Um, it's a world where paganism and Judaism surrounded them, this little church of believers there. It's an age where uh, the apostles and Jesus openly taught he was coming back to get them and from their tumultuous surroundings. And it was an age when the bride of Christ had to be without spot and without wrinkle, according to Ephesians, which we covered a, a month or so back. So Paul is telling them to be, to look, to play the part. And this suggests that there was a way for them to live the gospel appropriately through, their, through everything that they were doing. That way is pretty detailed in Paul's day. He, he gives a lot of specific instructions to them. And many expressions of the faith continue uh, to say these things are important now. Uh, because Paul said it then, then these expressions are important now. One of the commentators I really like that I consult when I prepare wrote this, quote, The rules of the gospel are to be applied to all of our conduct, to our conversation, business transactions, mode of dress, style of living, entertainments, etc. There is nothing which we do or say or purpose that is to be accepted from these rules. I was, I'm like, come on, man. And, and, and so we look around today and we'll see religious institutions establishing 
what they believe are important rules based off what the New Testament uh, writers say. Um, it's a, my pet peeve, you know that, because Jesus taught the opposite. And, and, and he taught, listen, it's, it's not what you're wearing. It's not who you hang out with. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out. It's all a heart thing with Jesus. It's all about the heart and mind of the individual. It's not the exterior stuff. So we have to remember Paul is trying to keep that church together. And when he tells them, listen, you know, be as one, do everything that becomes the gospel. There was a purpose for that. That bride was to be without spot and without wrinkle. But when we read it today and we're trying to establish uh, these external factors still, it's, it's really contrary to the heart of what Jesus said. We know a Mormon when we see one, at least on a Saturday, on a Saturday, on a Sunday, typically. You, you pretty much know one on a Sunday. We know, I, I went on a Mormon mission with the Amish. You know a devout Amish person when you see one. Uniforms of external conformity. And there's a problem, the problem with them is that those things almost always become as or more important than the heart and the mind of the individual. And we've talked about that ad nauseum here. The treasures of the heart are what the mouth speaks. So it's not what's going in. It's not what we don ourselves with. That had time and place to Paul and those believers then. Because we're living in the age of what I call fulfillment and because we really can't tell a believer from a non-believer, it's really difficult to tell a believer from a non-believer unless they're conforming to some cultural uh, thing that's popular. Like, like with even in Southern California, evangelical Christian church pastors often wear Tommy Bahama shirts and they look a certain way. So because of that, we can tell, yeah, you know, you look like a Christian. But, you know, if you go out and you travel the world, you can't tell who's a Christian and who's not. You can tell who's a Muslim. You can tell who's a Hindu. But a Christian is somebody who's a Christian in the heart. And, 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 and uh, they, their relationship is personal. And it's a subjective relationship with God. And it's in the hands of God and the spirit between that individual and how they're, they're living. So uh, if not then, uh, believers from, um, if this is not true, then believers who are like in the entertainment industry, I think there's somebody from the band Korn, which is a very heavy metal band. He's a Christian. He does not look like a Christian if you look at him, right? They're in big trouble. And it also then becomes a thing from saved by grace to being saved by grace and works, sort of. And we cross over that line. So Paul adds that whether I come and see you or else I be absent, I want to hear of your affairs. I want to hear how you're doing and he says that you stand fast in one spirit and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, an apostolic direction for them. I need you guys to be united. It's coming down around you as prophesied. It's good advice to them then, and it's good advice to us too, uh, that all believers stand fast in one spirit and stand fast in one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Why not? We, we should be able to have that as a common goal among us, wherever we are and whoever we meet. So no matter if I'm free uh, to come and see you or I'm left as in my chains in Rome, stand fast in one spirit and one mind and striving together for the faith of the gospel. Stand fast. Be patient. Be persistent. 
he says, in one spirit. Um, John the Beloved wrote in 1 John 4.1 to the believers in his day, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try, that word means test, um, discern, test them. You don't have to run from them, test them. The spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world at that time, and maybe even today, of course today. So, you know, there's spirits out there. I'm convinced that this is applicable to, as today as it was then. Uh, there are certainly forces, I don't know what they are, spirits that orbit around all sorts of things in this world. And who and what they are, I don't have any idea. Most Christians assign them to Satan and his demons. Uh, John adds in that chapter that I just quoted from in 1 John, something pertinent to them. He says, And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now is already in the world. They were, told, they were said the Antichrist is going to come. John there says it's already in the world. So I would suppose that same spirit, whatever it is, maybe of Antichrist, maybe demonic spirit, maybe dark spirits, are in the world today. Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesians 2.2, In times past, you, believers at Ephesus, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And so... Does the dark spirit that moved the prince of the power of the air, which leads to the children of disobedience actions, still thrive? Is it still out there thriving? It seems so, somehow. Uh, perhaps it's eternal, and it's always there. Where there is God, there is always an absence of God, and perhaps that absence of God, whether animated and embodied or not, is always present, and there's always forces of this darkness. Paul is saying to the believers there to uh, stand in the spirit of truth. Uh, it seems that uh, that certainly uh, seems to abide in our world today, the spirit of truth and a spirit of the world of lies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So he clearly delineates the idea that there is a spirit of God that abides with him, in him, to us, in the heavens, wherever he is. And there's a spirit of this world, right? The Germans call it the Weltgeist. Uh, some people, uh, Friedrich uh, Heigl came up with the Zeitgeist the spirit of the age. And perhaps there's a spirit of ages too that conform to what the world is all about. Those are not necessarily the spirit of God. So we're learning to kind of differentiate between these spirits as we read. Um, so uh, Jesus said in John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. The spirit of truth the world cannot receive because it seemeth, uh, because it seeth him not, neither knows him, 
But Jesus says, but you know him for he dwells with you and shall in the future day of Pentecost, or maybe before, be in you. So that's kind of a difference. Automatic, we have this division then, and I think it's a division now. If you're a child of God, if you by faith have Christ, the spirit of God is in you, and it's not the same as the spirit of this world. And it's difficult because we're in flesh in, of this world, so we war with those two different uh, forces. I don't want to sound too mystical, but the spirit or spirits of this world that move and motivate the children of the same seem readily apparent to me. Uh, we sense them in certain people, maybe even in certain places. You know, if I've gone, I've gone to see some concerts uh, as a believer that I used to see when I was younger, and there's a spirit there. There is definitely a, a spirit of that age, a zeitgeist of that concert, right? So, and sometimes we run into those, you know, they're kind of like, whoa, this doesn't seem like it's the spirit of God. Some seem to be really advanced and, and disguise themselves as light, but it's a light that doesn't warm. It's like those ersatz fires that are in, in cheap hotels that really aren't fires at all. They're light, but you go to them and, and you don't feel anything. Not, uh, so I'm, I'm criticized for saying that I agree with the Bible that Satan has been cast into the lake of fire. Uh, but this by no means can be construed to suggest that there are not still dark spiritual forces at work in this world. Absolutely. Whether they come from beyond the absence of God, from the heart of man, I can't say, but I, I believe there are. So Paul tells the believers in that day, when Satan was still there, going to be released, the Antichrist was present among John, Paul is telling them, listen, stand fast in one spirit, uh, the spirit of God, which is the spirit of truth, which manifests itself in joy, peace, love, long-suffering, patience, kindness, gentleness, righteousness, truth. Against such there is no law. That, so, so one of the tools that we can use as believers to discern what spirit is in operation, if you believe that what I'm saying is true, is to ask, what fruit will this teaching, this presentation produce in those who embrace it, whether it be me or others. What is the fruit, end fruit, of this teaching that I am talking about? And um, so we test all things, and we try the spirits, and we hold fast to what is good, remembering that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those three things— it's so clear. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. So if someone comes spouting a philosophy that is going to enhance the characteristics of the spirit of this world, you automatically know this isn't congruent with the spirit of truth. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, temperance, kindness, righteousness, truth, all those things that are delineated in Scripture for us. So using these tools, we're able to discern the spirits. One final thing, and it's just my, my assessment, having been in this for a while, for me personally, is strip the emotion out of your discernments. Forget the emotions. Emotions have no intelligence. They lie to us. So if you're discerning the spirit of truth versus the spirit of lies, don't let emotions crowd in there. 
Uh, emotions are important. God gave us emotions, and they're, they're really beneficial in a lot of ways. But when it comes to discernment, be very careful about your emotions coming in. Uh, who was it? Uh, Goebel or whatever his name. One of Hitler's henchmen say, we don't know uh, Hitler by the mind. We know Hitler by the heart. We know him by our emotions, right? So you can be really swayed really quickly. Try to be aware of that. So Paul says, stand fast in one spirit. And then he adds also, stand fast. He doesn't say that, but it's implied with one mind. Now, typically in the Greek, mind is nous, N-O-U-S, transliterated to English, N-O-U-S, right? Uh, But here, it doesn't say nous. I, I thought it would. But it says suke. It says stand fast in one suke. And so we know, you know, studying together, that the Greeks saw us having a pneuma, the spirit, having a suke, the mind, will, and emotion, which is commonly referred to as the soul, the mind, will, and emotion of a person. And uh, it's our each individual person. Stand fast in who you are, in your mind, in your will, and your emotion. Scripture commonly refers to suke synonymously as your heart, which is not meaning the beating thing. It's who you are. I'm Sean McCraney, born of Ed and Lou. I have a certain suke. And so he's telling those believers, stand with one mind, will, and emotion. Um, what does that mean? What does it mean? And I think that we're going to prove right now from Scripture, it means that Christians stand one unitedly with the mind of Christ. It's the mind of Christ. That's what Scripture will support. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Again, that was then then. They needed unity like no other, right? We'll talk a minute about the mind of Christ and how it applies with us in our Christian walk. But uh, the mind of the Lord God, Yahweh. Did you know, do you know what scripture says about his mind? The mind of the Lord God, of the YHWH, of God. We can't know it. That's what it says. We cannot know the mind of God. We have the mind of Christ, and you decide what, you, what this means in terms of delineation, but we can have the mind of Christ. We should have the mind of Christ, but we cannot know the mind of God. That's what scripture says. Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He's borrowing from Isaiah 40.13, and he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Who has known the mind of the Lord? These are two distinct minds in that the mind of Christ speaks to us human beings. Why? Because Christ, the word of God made flesh, came and lived in our realm. He understands, the mind of Christ understands temptation. He understands suffering in a certain way. He, he has a mind that we relate to as our mediator, right? So we can have the mind of Christ by the Spirit in us, right? But the Lord God, no human being has the ability to tap in to knowing his mind. Um, the form of speech that this is written in, in the Greek, is in the interrogative form, 
and it's the strongest mode possible denying that any human being ever has known the mind of the Lord God, ever, okay? The argument of Paul here is that no one can understand fully God. No one can comprehend his plans, his ways, his feelings, if he has feelings, his designs, if he has designs. No one knows his nature completely. We have ideas. We see scripture gives us things. Uh, in, his, in its entirety, we cannot guess what's going on with God and our lives in this world. You can't touch it, right? So last week at 10.06, our time, hold on. We started our Bible study, and at that same time, Kobe Bryant and eight souls got onto a helicopter at John Wayne Airport in Orange County. Uh, one of those souls is the wife of a friend of our family, uh, Matt Mauser. We grew up with Matt, and his wife was on that helicopter. And as we were studying for 46, 42 to 46 minutes, we were talking all about how are you going to live, what way are you going to choose, what's it going to be. That helicopter crashed into the side of a hill, killing Kobe Bryant and his daughter, and you know the news, right? Nobody, when it comes to the intentions of the living God, can say why this happened or why he didn't save them or any of that. Nobody in the positive or negative can speak for God on this. Soren Kierkegaard, who's influenced me greatly as I've studied Christianity, he's the father of modern existentialism and a, and a philosophy called absurdism. And his influence was great on other philosophers, Martin Heidegger and Jean-Paul Sartre and Boltman and uh, Emil Brunner, who are Christian thinkers. So a fan, he's a fantastic thinker in the Christian realm, Soren Kierkegaard. To understand him, it's important to understand how Kierkegaard understands God from Scripture. And he says that God is completely transcendent. And therefore, he said, is there is an infinite qualitative difference between God and me and you. An infinite, endless, qualitative difference. And so that separates God from his creations called human beings. And while Kierkegaard did believe that God became incarnate in Christ Jesus, he didn't feel that the incarnation did that much to help us understand the ways of God, which remain mysterious and, complete, and not knowable completely, or even probably even partially, really, in, in a large part. So... Um, and this is something that Paul and Isaiah seem to admit in these scriptures. As a result of this, uh, and because of Kierkegaard and his thoughts, um, he opened us up to this idea called absurdism that are practiced by Christians around the world. And that's at the heart of his definition of Christian faith. I'm almost done. For Kierkegaard, faith isn't a way of knowing God's ways or his acts. It's not even trusting that it's going to be good for us. It's none of that. 
Instead, Kierkegaard said, faith is a belief and trust in the strength of the absurd. And by absurd, he means that which contradicts our human reason. That when we're faced with something from God which contradicts our human reason, it should be seen by us as absurd, and in that we leap to faith. Meaning we cannot make sense of it. We can't say this is the reason. We can't say God was thinking this. We say we cannot reason this out. We don't know, and therefore we enter into this realm of absurdism which we just cannot explain why something is happening. And with this mindset, Kierkegaard produced the famous thing called the leap of faith. And what he said is we as Christians jump out into the arms of the unknowing and trust that whether God catches us or lets us fall, It's his will that we cannot reason with our own minds and we trust it. And we trust it. That blows my mind. That no matter what happens, we are not manipulating God like a puppet because we pray enough, fast enough, do this, do that. He does what he does. And when you jump into that absurdism and you say, God, I'm going to live my life And whatever comes my way, I'm not going to try to explain it. I'm going to accept it. Whether Whatever your thinking is behind it. That is Kierkegaard's leap of faith. And it's much different than someone who says, I trust God because he's loving and he always does what's best for me. It's not that he doesn't. It's not that we can't hold those things true in our heart. But we don't postulate as that's the meaning behind what's going on. Okay? Unfortunately, just really quick historical thing, in trying to help believers understand that we cannot speak for God's mind and to do so is a form of absurdity, um, secular thinkers and philosophers like Heidegger and Jean-Paul Sartre later said, oh, Kierkegaard, he came up with this great philosophy. We're going to strip all the Christianity out of it And we're just going to say, Kierkegaard, we're just going to say, you can't know God because there is no God. And so we're going to take all of Kierkegaard's Christianity out of his thinking. And what that produced is something called postmodernism. And that's when people say, "Uh, you know what? God is not there. He can't be known because he isn't there. Let's just take God out of everything. And let's strip reason away from our faith. And let's just look to science because science is the, is the thing that we can rely on. Science is reasonable. If I put this with that, this happens. That's reasonable. But you can't do that with God so God doesn't exist. And we entered into this, this realm that we're still in today with many th- more thinkers, many kids, many college students. For God, no way. No, I rely on science. Have you heard that in your life? So uh, this reaction was so extreme because Kierkegaard did not say we could not know things about God. He didn't say you can't know that God is a consuming fire. He didn't say that you can't know that God is love. He just said we can't know his intentions and motivations, his ways. And yet the secular uh, humanists took stripped that out of it and were left with a world that is godless. 
So the reality is, though, we can't. Uh, and unfortunately, our religious friends often make the mistake of thinking we can explain God. And they think they can assign events to his love, his anger, his retribution, his teaching us a lesson, him doing this, him doing that. It goes on in churches all over the world, right? And, um, you know, that, that makes us really superstitious. It makes us seem like we live by things like, uh, the soup is clear, uh, therefore the skies won't rain. That is, that is not Christianity. We don't live by these superstitious means that we come up with. So infinite God is not knowable by infinite man except for his attributes or maybe his, some of his traits. But he uses what he does remains a mystery and will until, I guess, some other time. Uh, Kierkegaard said the real faith is to step into that place where you can admit that and still trust him. And that is the expression of faith that he pr promoted. So to me, at least as a human, it makes no sense for a loving God to take a successful man, a basketball player, known around the world, with his daughter, supporting her, training her, you know, being with all their friends, taking the team, helping neighbors. It makes no sense for him to uh, take a helicopter and, and have it fall out of the sky and kill them all. That just doesn't make any sense at all when we look at it. To me, as a human, remember, just as a man who's a failure, it would make sense if they were starting to have mechanical problems and they landed on a skyscraper 20 minutes earlier in Los Angeles and got out of the helicopter and then the helicopter fell over and crushed a bunch of people who didn't believe in him. That would make more sense to me. <laughs> at least <laughs> I could speak to, that's God, right? But his ways don't make sense, right, to us. We can't understand. I can't for the life of me understand a child with cancer. That's impossible for me to understand in the hands of a good, of a good loving God, which he is, which I promote that he is. But to understand it or reason with it, Kierkegaard gives us some really good stuff as a Christian to think about. I'm going to go hands off on what God is doing. I'm just going to make the leap of faith and trust. So we can, however, as believers, know the mind of Christ, which is emphatically stated throughout Scripture. Interestingly, the next chapter, which we'll get to next week, uh, we might read it uh, before we leave today. It opens up with Paul saying in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now he says, okay, here's the mind that was in Christ who walked around in flesh. This was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it, not equal, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Bottom line, at the end of the day, do you know what it means to have the mind of Christ when, when Paul says, be of one mind? which is the mind of Christ in my estimation, it means to have a mind in this world to suffer. Just listen to what he just says in, in Philippians 2. But he, Christ, made himself of no reputation. He came from above 
he made himself no rep- reputation. That's painful. That's, that's, that's suffering. And took upon himself the form of a servant. That's suffering. That's painful. And was made in the likeness of men. Perhaps that was uncomfortable and painful to him. And found himself in the fashion as a man. He humbled himself. That's painful. And became obedient unto death. That's painful. Even the death of the cross, which was painful. That whole thing that he describes as the mind that was in Christ is a mind of suffering. And we don't like it. No one likes to hear it. Go to most churches that are big and popular. You won't hear, if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer. But it is hand in hand with the faith. Now, the suffering does not mean you're like Job and you, you know, everything that's taken in a whirlwind. It is an internal suffering of the mortification of your flesh when you would choose rather to act by your own will. It's saying, not my will, not my ways, but yours. That's the suffering, however it manifests. To be of one mind, which Paul stated, for them to stand firm in the mind of Christ is a way to say, suffer for his cause. This suffering comes by and through, like I said, a number of ways in the hands of God and in the Christian life and walk. And we can't articulate them because we all suffer in different ways. All of us are struggling and suffering for Christ in ways others maybe can't comprehend. Paul wrote in in Romans 7, 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. With my mind, I serve the law of God. Paul says you should be of one mind to those believers at Philippians, at Philippi. So, We too, with the mind, Paul says, I serve the law of God. He goes, but with the flesh, the law of sin. That's what my flesh, our our flesh will always serve sin. Always. But my mind, which was the mind in Christ, which is suffering, will serve the law of God, which is selflessness and and, uh, kindness and all the fruit of the Spirit. So to serve the law of God is to love others, which is insufferable. When they have harmed us, when they have hurt us, our enemies, let alone our friends and family who we love, is to love them with that agape love. To love them. That's insufferable. And um, it's synonymous with the suffering that is, was in the mind of Christ. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.1, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So it shows a connection between suffering for Christ and ceasing from the sins of our flesh. And that's the, that's the promotion of the, of the apostolic word to the believers then. That have the mind of Christ and you'll begin to suffer in your flesh and then the sins of the flesh will begin to abate, Right? From the first chapter of Peter, uh, in verse 13, he wrote of the saints in that day, Wherefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's speaking specifically to the book of, not the book of, but to the revelation of Christ, which is the book of Revelation. The Christ being revealed. To stand, gird up the loins of your mind, 
right? It doesn't say pull up the, the loins of your flesh. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to, for the end of grace that is to be brought upon you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This makes all the sense when we get back to our text today in Philippians, when Paul says next to the believers there, and in nothing be terrified by your adversaries. And in nothing be terrified by your adversaries. He says, stand uh, in one spirit, stand in one mind. And he says, for the promotion of the faith of the gospel, and in nothing be terrified by your adversaries. That line that he adds in the next verse helps us see what he's talking about in context. Um, The last thing Paul commended the believers to do in this verse was telling them that as they stood in one spirit and with one mind, they should continue striving together for the faith of the gospel. Laboring together, striving is taken from the uh, Greek wrestling matches and of the Olympics. St- wrestling, warring, agonizing with each other over uh, the faith of the gospel. That's an interesting turn of phrase. One spirit. You, you look at the unity in those three lines. One, one spirit, one mind, striving together, wrestling together. And so the unity was demanded of the early apostolic church. It cannot be denied. And the bride must be together, and the togetherness included all the things they did together, hence the instruction from uh, Paul. Today, we unify at best in our agape love for others. We, we cannot unify in the same apostolic way that was given to them. We're too big. We're all over the place. And so every little fiefdom of Christendom is trying to establish their own way, right? But true Christians everywhere are truly uniting in the treasures of their heart by the fruit of the Spirit with each other. And uh, so Paul adds at verse 28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, don't let them threaten you with their threats uh, or alienation. And then he adds, Which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. So don't be afraid of these people around you who are threatening you. Stand unified in these ways and don't fear them because what they're doing is a token of their perdition. It's a sign of what's going to happen to them, but it's also a sign of your salvation to come and of being pleasing to God. That's, what I, that's how I understand those uh, uh, verses. Don't be alarmed at anything which they do. Maintain your Christian integrity, notwithstanding all the opposition that they can make. They will, in the end, certainly be, the word perdition is interpreted in Scripture as um, suffer loss, be ruined, and then you can get more extreme uh, versions of it. it means destroyed or total destruction. You have to see what he means, that what they are doing to you is a token of their coming perdition that is happening in their lives. And when did it come? It came in 70 AD when the whole place was ripped apart and destroyed, leveled, done. That's, that's what he's warning them about. So he seems to be saying that they're going to suffer either loss, ruin, death, or total destruction. I don't know how to interpret it because it means all of those things. And to the believers, he says, but for you, it is an evident token of your salvation. And of, it says, and that of God in the scripture, but it's that of the support of God. By what they're doing to you, they are going to suffer perdition and you are going to have a token of your salvation and the idea that God is behind you. That's what he's saying. 
And then he says at verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ to not only believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So for you Christians, it's given on the behalf of being a Christian for Christ. It's on, on the behalf of our Lord and Savior, our King, who we, who we see and worship as our King, in the cause of Christ, in the honor of Christ, to not just believe on him. It's not just, yep, I'm a Christian, I believe. It's more to them then, at least, and I think to us now. But to also suffer for his sake, it says, which means for his cause, for what he came and established, what he did, what he died for, what he resurrected for. You're not just to believe, but you're to suffer for his cause. What's his cause? I think his cause is love. I think his cause is to try to reach the world constantly. And so we suffer for his cause of love. Oh, you want a challenge. That's it. That's brutal. But like Luther said, we can, um, we can get along with people we like. But if you think you can overcome your flesh, just hang around someone you don't. That's paraphrasing. It quickly is, the, the call is quickly for suffering. Patience, long-suffering, um, kindness, gentleness. In the face of something that is tough, it's so difficult at times for our flesh. And, uh, and we know that as believers. And so when we fail, we're humbled, we're brought low before God, and he sustains us by his spirit, and he encourages us to continue to try. So we, of course, uh, read, we, we know that this was part of the apostles' call, that they were to suffer for the cause of Christ. And we remember that when Peter and John, I think it was, came out of the prison, that they rejoiced uh, that, because they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's what it says in Acts. According to Scripture, suffering for God in the Old Testament and suffering for Christ in the New was a privilege. It was considered as a privilege. And perhaps this is because the student is not above the Master, and if we are to resemble him as our Lord, Savior, Christ, King, then we are to then experience what he experienced. And we are to react in trials and doing good in the face of evil and not being of this world and in rejection and pain and disappointment, being misunderstood, uh, being considered not a Christian when you are, uh, and of course, in dying to your will and embracing his. Then Paul adds, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. He brings himself back into the picture. He says, this is what I want you to do. And now he's speaking of himself and, uh, when he visited them in Philippi. And he says, you've seen the same conflict in me. Remember, they stoned him. They cast him out. The people at Philippi got together. They got mad at Paul and Silas, I think it was, maybe Barnabas. And they got mad. And so he says, you've seen this in me when I suffered it. And now you're hearing it about me as I am in Rome in chains. Both things, right? That was that age. You know, I know in, in uh, North Korea and I know in places of uh, Muslim infiltrated countries that Christians are still suffering in a similar way. So it's not to say that this type of physical suffering doesn't occur. But 
in many places, people don't care if you're a Christian or not. I mean, here in the U.S., they're like, you're a Christian? Oh, cool. You know, whatever. Live and be free. Of course, you bring Christ up and start talking about it, you get some of this. But usually, you know, it's not bad here, like in the United States and in Europe. But yeah, there's some of it, but nothing like it was. And so we have to know that the application to our lives as Christians, it's certainly an eternal principle. God's word is always there. That the suffering's a different type of suffering. And we have to understand that and embrace it. Make that leap of faith. Jump over not knowing what his purposes are, but trusting that they are of him and that they have a reason and we will walk in them, right? So this leads us to the next chapter and uh, we're going to, I'm just going to read, I'm not going to read the chapter, I'm just going to read the uh, first 11 verses, which parlay into what he's been talking about, their continuation, there were no chapter breaks. And then we will cover like the first verse and then we'll wrap it up. And next week we'll cover the verses I'm about to read. So Paul continues and he says, if there, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. It's a reiteration of what he said a minute ago. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not to every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We just read this, right? Who being in the form of God, thought it not a robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of the things of heaven and the things in earth, and the things under the earth, that every tongue should confess, conf, confess, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We're going to cover those verses next week. But really quickly, the first verse of the, in the, of the second chapter, uh, he's jumping off where he left off. He says, so if there be any consolation in Christ, you believers at Philippi, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of spirit, any bowels or mercy, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded. If any of this exists, be like-minded. Uh, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And that's a wrap-up to what he's already told them. So in other words, he's like, so, or in other words, if there's any consolation. Uh, periclesis is the word. If there's any solace, if there's any peace, periclesis, in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels or mercies, we'll talk what that means, fulfill you my joy, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, and we'll pick that up next week here in Milk. Questions, comments, insights. Mallory, you are, oh, Seth is Vanna. Mallory, you are up. Is it working? 
Does it matter? There it's we go. Working. When we're talking about the leap of faith and talking with my kids this week about how we don't always understand, you know, how we can't, what you described, Kierkegaard saying, you can't understand um, God's ways because we don't know him. We don't know his intentions. And to take that leap of faith, uh, I find myself feeling stupid like because that dumb faith like around non-believers they look at you like you're an idiot like how could you just how do you bring any kind of intellect to well remember Kierkegaard wasn't extracting reason from what he was saying Uh, the way what I believe is that do we have evidences of God in this world well, I see yeah. it like what Scripture says. I see it in the cosmos. Yeah. I see it in creation. Yeah. I see it in the birth of, of children like your sons. Yeah. I see it in the Word. I see it in my life. I see it in all these things. So those are evidences and reasons. Yeah. So when I see a presence of Him being presented in irrefutable things in terms of my heart, mm. I can make that leap without feeling dumb. Yeah. What I do and I have to avoid is saying, you're dumb for not making the leap. Yeah. Right? But that is a part of my flesh that just wants to attack back. But in reality, you are basing your leap of faith on evidences that he has given all of us so that we're not believing in a vacuum. Yeah. And it's not like he's saying, hey, believe in these gold plates that were written and they were taken up by an angel and they don't exist. We have evidences for our faith. Yeah. So that's how you avoid that feeling dumb. And that's really all there is. That's what I could, what it comes down to every time. Just look at nature look right. at this is, did this is this all an accident or was there yeah. an and intelligent you, and you're walking by faith no matter yeah. what you have to uh, assent to the idea before anyone when i was interviewed by those atheists a while ago i said look at man i'm choosing to believe this i choose to believe it yeah. just like abraham chose to believe god and it was counted him for righteousness mm-hmm. i am making the choice you don't have to make the choice i'm loving the same but i'm making the choice and that is the intellectual ascent you're giving God. You're making that leap. And that, for some reason in Hebrews, pleases him. He likes when his creations say, I don't know what the heck you're doing, but I'm not going to stop trusting you. Yeah. Is there a difference to then? My husband is like, he's. A, I think he believes in a creator. Sometimes he says things that <clears throat> surprises me, though. And in our conversations this week with my sons, he said, Something like, it's okay if you, for people to not believe though. Some people don't believe and that's okay too. And you have to just. Well, in the human realm, it is okay because God even allows that. And so in the human realm, it is okay for people not to believe. You choose to believe and therefore believing, you say, I have to love those people. Yes, I know I have to love them, but can I, do I teach that it's okay? Uh, you have to d- d- differentiate between okay and what realm. Okay here on earth, of course it's okay. It's okay if you wear a pink wig to school too, right? Well, maybe not. But uh, is it okay in the realm after this? Oh, no, that's not okay. No, because God is pleased by our faith on his son who he gave. So it's not okay when you die. It's okay here, and that's what daddy's talking about. Yeah. But afterward, is it okay there? No, 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 it's not. We have to believe that he gave his son, and we believe on him for a reason, right? And but I can teach though that I mean he w- he's going to love all, us all in the end. He loves us all in the beginning. Yeah. Right. That's why he gave his son. But but if someone chooses non-faith, 
that's okay here in this world, but when they die, they will be outside of his realm because yeah. his sons. And so that's why we want to seek faith and challenge and test faith. Yeah. That's what I would try to encourage both my, your husband and your sons. Thank you. You're welcome. Great question, Mallory Lundqvist, the Swedish persuasion. Okay, so coming from a Mormon background, of this is Danny. This is Danny. Coming from a Mormon nope. background, I was uh, raised to believe, and I did believe that God was once a man. So I thought I understood God pretty much. That you know, He went through what I went through, and He sort of got it, and He was still learning Himself and progressing. And so I related to that God in that way. Now, as a Christian, I have to dismiss all of that. As I read the scripture, the Bible, you know, I understand that God is not a man. He even says that in Isaiah, mm -hmm. and that we can't understand him fully. The only way I can relate to God is that he gave his only son for the world. Mm -hmm. And that he did that because he loved all of us. Mm -hmm. And so as I practice love with the mind of Christ, that's the only way I can relate to God. Yeah. That's the only way I can identify. Even with him being described as light and fire, I don't really understand that no. so much. No, but the know. love part I get because yeah. I love, I can love my fellow beings. Yeah. And I can love him. And you know how it is. Sometimes you just are overcome by that love oh, that yeah. he expresses in the quiet moments of your day. Yeah. Um, let's see if I had a question here I wanted to ask you. Um, oh, so do you, th I think I know the answer to this, but so Christ was sent to earth, or not sent to earth, but uh, the word became flesh and, um, and he suffered all these things so he would understand the human nature of being here on earth, his creations and all that. Before that happened, you think God, before his creations, got it? That he understood exactly how men would suffer without sending his son down here to, to experience it in the flesh? Hard question. That's the only kind of a question I have. It's a hard He's all-knowing. I yeah. understand that. So maybe he does. Yeah. But yet I still... The non-time-space continuum bit where it's all one oh, yeah. and all that's that. Good. That's a good way to look but at it. But I don't know. The, I have no idea, brother. Yeah. None. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Good Good stuff. Anybody else? We have a visitor here. His name is Jim. Say hi to Jim. And thanks for joining us. You're always welcome, brother. And uh, there's coffee. And there is there bagels? No. not, not, not We usually have bagels for everyone to take. Okay. That's it. No prayer list, Seth? Banna, you are slowing down on the job. No prayer list. All right, let's pray and get out of here. Lord, we uh, pray your uh, blessings upon our minds and hearts and that we will understand better what it means to have the mind of Christ and, uh, and to, you know, think about these things that, that Danny and Mallory uh, brought up about you know, this love that you have and how you manifest yourself through that, giving us your only uh, human son and, and then how to, how to make that leap 
and the things that support that leap that you do give us, that it's not in, in absence of factors, but that you give us things, you surround us with things, including your spirit, which for others is not enough, but that we make that leap based on those things. Help us to solve the questions of our minds, the questions that we have with spouses and children, grandchildren, our parents, our neighbors, and, uh, and equip us to be better Christians so that when we exit this brick-and-mortar building, we, by your Spirit, will be able to facilitate your will and not our own. We pray for these things earnestly, God. Help us to have a great day. It's Super Bowl Sunday here, and uh, we pray that those who are going to have friends and family over, that your spirit will be in abundance and uh, that the love will be felt and people will earnestly desire to participate in that. We pray for the lonely and the lost, the sick, the broken, the poor, the rich. We pray for everybody. Uh, We pray for the state that it will catch on fire with your truth. We pray for the uh, people who are involved in sharing it, and we pray for those who are of our own little group here that are suffering and having difficulty because of death and disease and uh, difficulty, Lord. So we exit here now, trusting in you, making that leap of faith daily. In Jesus' name, amen. And the world.